How's it going everybody? You're listening to The Raven's Grove. I'm your host, Dahi, and this is the first part of our newest segment, Shipwreck Stories, where we'll be exploring the stories of some of the world's most famous shipwrecks. To be a victim of shipwreck is one of the most horrifying fates known to mankind, but for some survivors of shipwrecks, the wrecking of the ship is only just the start of the nightmare. And so today, we're going to be taking a closer look at three of the most infamous shipwrecks in maritime history. The Batavia, considered by many to be one of the most horrific shipwrecks of all time. The destruction of the whaleship Essex, which inspired the finale of Herman Melville's epic work of literature Moby Dick. And arguably, the most famous shipwreck of modern times, the RMS Titanic. Now, before we get started on the trigger warnings, I want to say this is the 50th episode that we've broadcast, and I want to say thank you. I mean, this has been a project that I've been working on for about over a year now, and the amount of positive feedback I've gotten from listeners is just, it really means a lot to me. So thank you for being on this journey with me. I, I really appreciate all the feedback and all the encouragement, and I'm planning on doing this for a long time, so stay tuned for more episodes. So... Be warned, this episode of the Raven's Grove features the following trigger warnings. Sexual abuse mentions, murder mentions including murders of women, children and infants, torture mentions, whaling mentions, butchery and harvesting of animal good mentions, cannibalism mentions for survival purposes only, insanity mentions, negligence mentions and drowning mentions, as well as major spoilers for the book Moby Dick and the film In the Heart of the Sea. So if any of those are in any way an issue for you, please give this episode a miss. Alright, so now those are out of the way, let's get this voyage underway. So the first shipwreck I'm going to talk to you about is considered to be one of the most horrific and brutal of all shipwreck disasters, and it easily takes the title of most brutal shipwreck disaster in Australian waters. This is the story of the Batavia wreck. We begin our tale on the 27th of October, 1628, in the city of Texel in the Netherlands. Now, a little bit of a dendum here, I don't actually speak Dutch, so any and all pronunciation errors I make are on me. So the brand new ship, the Batavia, was about to set sail on a maiden voyage for the Dutch East India Company, known in history as the richest company to ever exist. For reference, at its height, the Dutch East India Company had a net worth roughly equivalent as of this recording in 2022 to $9,442,000,000,000 US, $14,105,000,000,000 Australian, Eight trillion nine billion British pounds, twelve and a half trillion Canadian, nine trillion one hundred thirty-eight billion euro, ninety-three trillion six hundred seven seven hundred sixty-three billion Norwegian krona, two hundred ninety-two trillion eight four hundred eight billion Thai new dollars, and one hundred four one hundred eighty-four trillion three hundred nine billion Mexican pesos. You can't have just pesos. Anyways. Yeah, the Batavia was part of a fleet of eight ships setting out for Batavia, West Indies, in what is nowadays Indonesia. She was about 150 feet or 46 meters in length and had an armament of 24 cast iron cannons. Bear in mind, she wasn't a warship. The hold of the Batavia held 250,000 gilda, which was the uh, currency of the Netherlands at the time, and 12 chests filled with silver coins, as well as, among other things, four bags filled with jewels intended for the Mughal court of India. The total value in today's currency of the cargo is roughly equivalent to nearly four and a half million US, just over six and a half million Australian, four hundred four million three hundred twenty-one thousand three hundred euro, three million seven hundred eighty-eight thousand nine hundred British pounds, nearly six million Canadian, 
44,711,550 Norwegian kroner, 86,200,000 pesos, or 138,540,000 tiny dollars. Taiwan new dollars. Now, the point here is that she was loaded to the gunnels with treasure. But before the Batavia could set sail, there were problems. The, the commander of the Batavia, in other words, the one who was actually truly in command of the ship appointed by a Dutch East India Company, was a senior merchant called Francisco Pelsert. And there was a long seared grudge between him and the appointed skipper of the Batavia, Arian Jacobs. See, a few years prior, Pelsert and Jacobs had run, again, run into each other in Dutch Surat which is a region of Dutch colonial rule in West now India. Apparently, Jacobs had become drunk and insulted Pelsert in front of the other merchants. Pelsert had given him a very public, well, telling off, and animosity had existed ever since between the two men. Also on board was the junior merchant Hieronymus Cornelius, a bankrupt apothecary from Harlem, who was on the run from Dutch law enforcement for his heretical beliefs associated with the Dutch painter Johannes van der Beek. According to the account given by Pelsert, Cornelius and Jacobs devised a plan to seize control of the ship and leave, start a new life somewhere else using treasure on board during the voyage. After leaving the Cape of Good Hope when the Batavia put in for supplies, Pelsert alleges that the Jacobs had deliberately steered the ship off course away from the rest of the fleet. Jacobs and Cornelius had already gathered a small group of like-minded male conspirators, and together they arranged an incident to incite a mutiny. They sexually assaulted one of the female passengers, a woman called Lucretia Jans, and which was done to provoke Pelset into disciplining the entire crew. The theory behind it was that the conspirators would be able to paint the discipline as unfair in the, on the majority of the crew, and they'd be able to um, recruit more members for the mutiny out of sympathy. However, the plan was scuppered when Lucretia was able to identify her attackers, and, well, that plan fizzled out. On the 4th of June, 1629, the Batavia struck a morning reef near Beacon Island, part of the Houtman Abrolhos off the western coast of Australia. Of the 322 people aboard, most of the passengers and crew managed to survive and get to shore, although apparently 40 people did drown in the wrecking. The survivors, along which included all the women and children aboard, and bear in mind, these were not crewmen, they were passengers, they were the women and children of some of the passengers that were sailing to Batavia, to basically civil servants' families. They were not trained soldiers, they were not trained sailors, these were innocent passengers. They were transferred to nearby islands via the ship's longboat and yawl, which is a type of boat. The bad news, an initial survey of the islands found no fresh water and only limited food, mainly Australian fur seals and different seabirds. Pelsert realized the dire situation and decided to search for water on the mainland. A group consisting of Jacobs, Pelsert, senior officers, a few crew members, and some passengers left the wreck site in a 9-meter, or 30-foot, longboat in search of drinking water. After an unsuccessful search for water on the mainland, the, they left the other survivors and headed north on a perilous journey, voyage to the city of Batavia in the West Indies, which is nowadays known as the city of Jakarta, Indonesia, which was also the ship's namesake, Batavia, the ship Batavia, see what I mean, and to seek rescue. While en route, the, fru, the crew made further forays in, onto the mainland in search of fresh water. In his journal, Pelsa sta stated that on 15th of June 1629, they sailed through a channel, between the reef and the coast, finding an opening around midday at a latitude which he guessed to be about 23 degrees south of where they were able to land, and water was found. 
The group spent the night on the mainland and Pelser commented on the vast number of terminite mounds in the vicinity and the, va- and the plague of flies that afflicted them. Pelser stated they continued north with the intention of finding, and I'm quoting him here, the River of Jacob Remessens. Which, in quote, which was first identified in 1622, but owing to the wind, they were unable to land. Archaeologists and historians have suggested this location to be identified as Yardy Creek in Western Australia. It wasn't until the longboat reached the island of Nusa Kambangan in, in, the, in the Dutch East Indies that Pelset and the others found more water. Their journey took 33 days with everyone surviving. After the arrival in Batavia, the boatswain, Jan Everts, was arrested and executed for negligence and, quote, outrageous behavior, end quote, before the loss of the ship. He was suspected of being involved with the wrecking of the ship and also with the attempted sexual assault. Yakos was also arrested for negligence, though his culpability in the potential mutiny was not guessed by Pelsert. Governor-General Jan Pietersen Cohen immediately gave Pelsert command of the Sardam, a smaller vessel which was used to transport goods between islands in the Dutch East Indies in order to rescue survivors, as well as attempt to salvage any riches from the Batavia's wreck. Pelsert returned to the vicinity ocean where the mishap occurred within a month, but took another month of searching in the area to locate the islands again. He finally arrived at the uh, site to find that a bloody massacre had taken place among the survivors, reducing their numbers by at least 100, and be warned, this is where it gets graphic. See, Cornelius was one of the few men who stayed behind on the Batavia to pillage and steal. He was one of the few who had survived the initial breakup, or the final breakup of the ship, and had made it to Beacon Island after floating for two days. Though he was neither sailor nor soldier, Cornelius was in, in, elected to be in charge of the survivors due to his senior rank in the Dutch East India Company. He made plans to hijack any rescue ship that might return and use the vessel to seek another safe haven. Cornelius made far-fetched plans to start a new kingdom using the gold and silver from the wreck. However, to carry out his plan, he first needed to eliminate all possible opponents. His first deliberate act was to have all weapons and food supplies commandeered and placed under his control. He then moved a group of soldiers led by Weber Hayes to nearby West Wallaby Island, located roughly 8.7 kilometers or approximately 5.4 miles to the northwest of their current location, under the pretense of having them search for water. They were told to send smoke signals when they found water and they would then be rescued. However, Cornelius was convinced they would be unsuccessful, and so he basically left them there to die, taking complete control of the remaining survivors. Now, I should point out that Cornelius never actually committed any of the murders himself, although he did try and fail to poison a baby who was eventually strangled. Instead, he was able to coerce others into doing it for him, usually under the pretense that the victim had committed a crime such as theft. Cornelius and his henchmen had originally murdered just to save themselves and keep their plans going, but eventually they just began to kill for pleasure or out of habit. Cornelius planned to reduce the island's population to about 45 so that their supplies would last as long as possible. He also feared that many of the survivors would remain loyal to the Dutch East India Company. In total, Cornelius' followers murdered at least 110 men, women, and children. A small number of the women were kept as sex slaves, and among them was Jans, who was reserved by Cornelius for himself. Although Cornelius had left the soldiers led by Hayes to die, 
the Hayes and the soldiers had actually found good sources of food and water on West Wallaby Island. Initially, they were completely unaware of the massacres taking place and sent prayer and smoke signals announcing their finds. However, they soon learned of the massacre from survivors fleeing Beacon Island. In response, the sailors devised makeshift weapons for materials washed up from the wreck. They also set up a watch so that they were ready for the Cornelius' men, and they uh, built a small fort out of limestone and coral blocks. Cornelius seized on the news of water on the other island, as his own supply was dwindling and the continued survival of the soldiers threatened his own plans. He, he went with his men to try and defeat the soldiers marooned on West Wallaby Island. However, the trained soldiers were, by now, much better fed than Cornelius' group and easily defeated them in several battles, eventually taking Cornelius hostage. His men who escaped regrouped under soldier Wouter Luz and tried again, this time employing muskets to besiege Hayes' fort and almost defeating them. However, Hayes' men prevailed again just as Saddam arrived on the scene. A race to the rescue ship ensued between Cornelius' men and the soldiers. Hayes reached the ship first and was able to present his side of the story to Palesert. After a short battle, the combined force of Hayes' men and Palesert's forces were able to capture all of Cornelius' group. Now, Palesert decided to conduct a trial on the islands because the Saddam on the return voyage to the city of Batavia would have been overcrowded with both survivors and prisoners. After a brief trial, the worst offenders were taken to Seal Island and executed. Cornelius and several of his henchmen had both hands chopped off before being hanged, which in my opinion was too good for him. Luz and a cabin boy, Jan Pelgrom de Bay, who were considered only minor offenders, were marooned on mainland Australia and were never heard of again. Now this actually makes them the first Europeans to have permanently lived on the Australian continent, which is pretty cool. This location is thought to be Whittakara Creek near Kalbari in West Australia, although another suggestion is nearby Port Gregory. The rest of Cornelius' henchmen were taken back to Batavia for trial. Five of them were hanged, while several others were flogged, keelholed, or dropped from the yardarm on the voyage back home. Cornelius' second-in-command, Jakob Peters, was broken on the wheel, which was the, second, the most severe punishment available at the time. I won't go into details as to what it is, but let's just say it's pretty messed up. Jacobs, despite being tortured, did not confess, confess his part in playing the mutiny and escaped execution due to the lack of evidence. What finally became of him is unknown. He might have died in prison in, in what's nowadays Jakarta. A board of inquiry decided that Pelset had exercised a lack of authority and was therefore partly responsible for what happened. His financial assets were seized and he died within a year. Hayes was hailed as a hero and was promoted to sergeant, which increases salary, and every soldier that had been under his command were promoted to the rank of corporal. Of the original 322 people on board the Batavia, only 122 made it back to the actual city of Batavia. The Saddam eventually sailed home with most of the treasure that was previously carried on the Batavia aboard, and of the 12 treasure chests that were originally on board, 10 of them were recovered and brought aboard the Saddam. And for reference, one of them was smashed open and destroyed by Cornelius' men, and the other one was buried under a cannon when the ship went down and they couldn't lift it underwater, so as far as I know, it's still there. As for the wreck, in surveying the northwest coast of the Abrolhos Islands, for the wreck for the British Admiralty in April 1840, Captain John Lord Stokes reported that the beams of a large vessel were reported, assumed to be the wreck of the Zerich, which sank in 1727 on the southwest point of an island, reminding them that since Zerich's crew had, and I'm quoting it directly here, reported to see the wreck of a ship on this part, there is little doubt that those remains were those of the Batavia, end quote. In the 1950s, historian Henrietta Drake Brockman argued that from extensive archival research that the Batavia wreck must lie in the Wallaby Islands. 
The wreck was first sighted in 1963 by lobster fisherman David Johnson. Many of the artifacts were salvaged in the 1970s, including portside stern timbers, cannons, and an anchor. To facilitate the monitoring and any future treatment, the hull timbers were erected on a steel frame. This design, and that of a stone arch, were also recovered, and it was such that uh, the individual components could be easily removed. In 1972, the Dutch government officially transferred rights to Dutch shipwrecks in Australian waters to the Australian government. Excavated items are on display in Western Australian Museum's various locations, although the majority of the cannons and anchor have been left in situ, and the wreck to this day remains one of the premier diving sites on the Western Australian coast. Now, our next shipwreck story is one of my personal favourite pieces of maritime folklore, mainly due to the fact they inspired one of my all-time favourite books, Moby Dick. Now, major spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read or is currently reading Moby Dick for a school assignment, but at the end of the book, the whale rams into the ship, cleaving it in two, with the only survivor of this wreck being the narrator of the story, Ishmael. Now, that's where the story ends in Moby Dick, but in real life, this was just a start of the nightmare. But before we get to that part, we should learn a bit about the Essex and her crew. Now, I'm going to say this once and once only. I have never nor will I ever approve of the systematic hunting of whales, and I condemn whaling in the modern day in all shapes and forms. But the sad fact of the matter is that prior to the discovery of natural oil deposits underground in the 1850s, the world ran on whale oil. Whale oil was used to illuminate warm homes worldwide. Whale bone was used in fashion of all genders. Whale oil was used to lubricate machinery. It was a huge, multi-billion dollar industry by today's standards. In fact, the use of whale products continues to the modern day, with a major ingredient in many high-quality perfumes being ambergris, which is a waxy substance produced in the digestive system of sperm whales. Thankfully, as far as I know, most, if not all, ambergris in the modern day is either harvested from pre-deceased whales or is actually manufactured artificially because the active chemical of ambergris makes it so useful in perfumery. Ambroxan is now easily able to man be manufactured in the labs, making the hunting of sperm whales unnecessary for the well, harvesting of ambergris. In addition, it is illegal to possess, import, or export ambergris in Australia, the US, and India, which, in my opinion, is a really, really good thing. Anyways, the main center of whaling in the USA during the 1700s and the first half of the 1800s was the island of Nantucket in Massachusetts, and no, I'm not going to do the rude poem. The Essex was one of a fleet of whaling ships based in Nantucket in 1819. Now, the Essex was originally launched in 1799, so by 1819 she was considered old by whaling ship standards, but she was also considered by sailors to be a lucky ship. You see, whaling vessels in those days were essentially floating factories. They were designed and built for the express purpose of sailing to distant oceans, processing killed whales into oil, and storing that oil on the voyage home back to the home port. And the problem was, Essex was small for a whaling ship at about 88 feet, or 27 meters in length, Immediately prior to her setting out on her voyage in 1819, her primary old owners, Gideon Folger and Paul Macy, had invested some repairs to the Essex, including expensive coppering of the thick oak hull below the waterline, but for the most part they didn't spend any more on her than was absolutely necessary. The Essex set out from Nantucket on 12th of August 1819 with a crew of 21 and four whaleboats. By December 1819 she had reached the Pacific. You see, by 1819, the sperm whale population in the Atlantic Ocean had been so damaged that whaling ships were forced to hunt, start hunting in the Pacific Ocean instead. After a disastrous incident on Charles Island, which 
pretty much involved setting the entire island ablaze, and the island's pretty much barren now. The uh, well, the crew of the Essex was on edge, and talks of ill omens were common. When the Essex finally reached the hunting grounds, thousands of miles in the west of South America, the crew were a- unable to find any whales for days. Tensions between the officers on board started to mount, particularly between the captain, George Pollard, and the first mate, Owen Chase. When they finally found a whale on November 16th, it surfaced directly beneath Chase's boat, with the result that being that the boat was literally dashed to pieces. But at 8 in the morning, on November 20th, 1820, the lookout sighted spouts, and the three remaining whaleboats set out to pursue a pod of sperm whales. On the leeward, which is the downwind side of the Essex, Chase's whaleboat harpooned a whale, but its tail struck the boat and opened up a seam, forcing the crew to cut the harpoon line and return to the Essex for repairs. Two miles away on the windward side, eh, Pollard and second mate Matthew Joy's boats had each harpooned a whale and were dragged towards the horizon away from the Essex in what whalers of those days called it a Nantucket sleigh ride. Chase was repairing the damaged whaleboat on board the Essex when the crew sighted an abnormally large sperm whale, a male, reported to be about 85 feet or 26 meters in length. And this whale, this whale was acting very, very strangely. It lay motionless on the surface facing the ship and then began to swim towards the vessel, picking up speed by shallow diving. The whale rammed the Essex, knocking her from side to side, and then dove under her, surfacing close to the ship's side. As his head lay alongside the bow and his tail by the stern, it lay motionless and appeared to be stunned. Chase prepared to harpoon it from the deck, where he realized that the tail was only inches from the rudder, meaning the whale could easily destroy it if provoked by an attempt to kill it. Fearing to leave the ship struck thousands of miles from land with no way to steer, uh, Chase hesitated. The whale recovered, swam several hundred yards in front of the ship, and turned to face the ship's bow. In his book documenting the Essex disaster, Owen Chase writes, and I'm quoting it directly here, I turned around and saw him about 100 rods, and for reference, 100 rods is about 500 meters or 550 yards, directly ahead of us, coming down with twice the speed, his ordinary speed of about 24 knots, roughly 44 kilometers an hour, uh, and it appeared with tenfold fury and vengeance in his aspect. The surf flew in all directions about him with a continual violent lashing, thrashing of his tail. His head uh, ha- about half out of the water, and in that way he came upon us and again struck the ship. End quote. The whale crushed the bow of the ship. It was driving the vessel backwards and then finally disengaged its head from the shattered timbers and swam off, never to be seen again, leaving the Essex quickly going down by the bow. Now, for reference, the bow of a ship is a front of the ship. Chase and the other remaining sailors on board frantically tried to add rigging to the only remaining whaleboat, while the steward, William Bond, ran below to gather the captain's sea chest and whatever navigational aids he could find. Chase writes it, and I'm quoting him here, The captain's boat was the first that reached us. He salted our boat's length off, but had no power to utter a single syllable. He was so completely overpowered by the spectacle before him. He was, in a short time, however, uh, able, enabled to address the inquiry to me, My God, Mr. Chase, what is the matter? I answered, we had been stove by a whale, end quote. Now, the cause of the whale's aggression is not known. In his book, which chronicles the Essex disaster, the In the Heart of the Sea, author Nathaniel Philbrick speculated that it may have first struck the boat accidentally or have had its curiosity aroused by the sound of a hammer as a whaler worked to repair a damaged whaleboat by nailing in a replacement board, with the frequency and sound of the nailing may have been sounding similar to those made by bull sperm whales to communicate and echolocate, but the truth is we don't really know. And the end result 
was that the Essex was sunk approximately 2,000 nautical miles, nearly 3,700 kilometers west of South America. After spending two days salvaging what they could from the waterlogged wreck, and the 20 sailors that had made it into lifeboats prepared to set out on the three surviving whaleboats, totally and painfully aware that they had completely insufficient supplies of food and water for a journey back to land. On December 20th, just hours before the men would die of thirst, they made landfall at Henderson Island, a small uplifted coral atoll within the Monday Pitcairn Islands. Had they landed on Pitcairn Island itself, which was about 120 miles or 190 kilometers to the southwest, they might have received help, as the descendants of the survivors of HMS Bounty still lived there. As it was, they found a small freshwater spring and gorged themselves on endemic birds, crabs, eggs, and peppergrass. However, after just one week, they had almost completely exhausted natural resources on land, and the crew decided to set sail again. This time, though, three of the men opted to stay on Henderson Island, leaving 17 men to continue on in the three remaining whaleboats. Side note here, after almost a year after the Essex sank, Lloyd's List reported that the Surrey had rescued these three men and taken them to Port Jackson, Australia, and I'll get back to that in a minute. One by one, the remaining 17 men on the whaleboats began to die of thirst, hunger, and exposure, and soon after, the survivors were forced to resort to cannibalism to survive. The third boat drifted off in late January 1821, and the three men in that boat were missing, presumed dead. By on, from February 18th, the final boat, the third, sorry, on February 18th, the boat containing Owen Chase, Benjamin Lawrence, and Thomas Nickerson was rescued by the British vessel, the Indian. The Captain Pollard's boat, now only containing Pollard and Charles Ramsdell, a seaman, was rescued on February 23rd by the Nantucket whaleship Dauphin. The uh, two men had become so dissociative that they didn't even notice a Dauphin alongside their boat and became terrified when they saw their rescuers. On March 5th, the Dauphin encountered the Nantucket whaleship The Two Brothers sailing to Vilparaiso in Chile and transferred the men to her. After a few days in Vilparaiso, Chase, Lawrence, and Nickerson were transferred to the frigate the USS Constellation and were placed under the care of the ship's doctor, who oversaw their recovery. After officials had been informed that three Essex survivors, Wright, Weeks, and Chapel, had been left behind on Ducey Island, they were actually left on Henderson Island, the authorities asked the merchant vessel Surrey, which had already intended to cross the Pacific, to look for the men. The rescue succeeded, and on March 17th, Pollard and Ramsdell were reunited with Chase, Lawrence, and Nickerson. By the time the last of the eight survivors were rescued on April 5th, 1821, the corpses of seven fellow sailors had been consumed for survival. This event inspired Moby Herman Melville to write Moby Dick, and Nathaniel Philbrick's book, In the Heart of the Sea, went on to inspire the 2015 film of the same name. Seriously, go give the movie a try. It's a great film, directed by Ron Howard and starring Chris Hemsworth and Chase, and it handles the subject matter with a great deal of sensitivity and respect. It's really well worth a look. So our final shipwreck for today is perhaps the most famous shipwreck of modern times, and it's, been, it's become synonymous with shipwrecks and of the arrogance of man, the Titanic. Built and owned by the White Star Line Shipping Company, she was an Olympic-class luxury superliner, constructed in Belfast by the shipbuilders Highland and Wolfe, who were authorized to spend whatever was necessary on the Olympic-class ships. In 1908, Highland and Wolfe agreed to have approximately £3 million to use in the building of those first two ships, plus extras to contract and the usual 5% fee. Half of that amount was solely for the Titanic. As of this recording in 2022, that means that the price tag for the Titanic was roughly equivalent to 
213,260,000 pounds, 379,600,000 Australian, 253,621,000 US, 245,207,000 Euro, 339,770,000 Canadian, 7 billion. 309,267,000 Taiwan new dollars, 2,584,800,000 Norwegian kroner, or nearly 5 billion Mexican pesos. Now, understandably, with this much cash being sent on, spent on her construction, Titanic was going to be one of the most luxurious ocean liners of her time, and boy, oh boy, was she ever. Seriously, pause this episode. Go look up episode, photos of the Titanic's ballroom or grand staircase on the internet and then keep listening. Pretty incredible, right? That amount of opulence and wealth, that level of craftsmanship, it's mind-blowing. Now, Titanic's owners claim that she was unsinkable, a bold claim, and one that would sadly prove to be fatal. The Titanic's maiden voyage was from Southampton, England, to New York, USA, and she set sail on 10th of April, 1912. Now, she wasn't trying to break any land speed records, but she was due to arrive at New York's Pier 59 on April 17th, and the, uh, the first few days of the voyage passed without incident. However, the captain, Edward Smith, had received numerous warnings of floating ice in the area of the North Atlantic, but he had chosen to ignore them. The Titanic proceeded at full speed, as was standard policy at the time. At 8.14pm ship time on the 14th of April, lookout Frederick Fleet spotted an iceberg dead ahead of the Titanic and alerted the bridge. First Officer William Murdoch ordered the ship to be steered around the obstacle and the engines to be reversed, but it was too late. The starboard side of the Titanic collided with the iceberg, with the iceberg gouging six short gashes into the Titanic's hull below the waterline. You see, Titanic had a number of watertight compartments designed for this kind of thing, but the problem was that these compartments were not designed for more than one to be flooded at once. More than four being flooded would result in the ship going down, and the iceberg had punctured five. It gets worse. The Titanic only had enough lifeboats for less than half of the estimated 2,224 passengers and crew aboard, and when it became apparent the Titanic was sinking, the crew and officers were totally unprepared for such a disaster. They'd never been trained for this kind of thing. The lifeboat policy at the time was women and children first, and for the most part, this was actually followed, with the women and children of the survivors of the Titanic surviving at a rate of about 75 and 50% respectively, whereas the men of the Titanic only had a 20% survival rate. Tragically, most of the third-class passengers were left to fend for themselves, resulting in the majority of them to become trapped below decks as the ship filled up with water. Having seen the Titanic's distress flares, the RMS Carpathia arrived on the scene at about uh, 4 a.m. But by the time she arrived, only 710 people were saved and transferred to the Carpathia. At least 1,500 perished in the freezing waters of the North Atlantic. This, to this day, remains the greatest loss of life in the sinking of an ocean liner in peacetime. The wreck of the Titanic was found by a joint French-American expedition led by Robert Ballard and Jean-Louis Michel on the 1st of September 18, 1985. The popular belief was that the Titanic had sunk in one piece, but the sonar scans and submersible dives to the wreck showed that the Titanic had actually split into two pieces close to the surface as she sank, lying about a third of a mile 
roughly 600 meters apart in Titanic Canyon off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada. They are located 13.2 miles, 21.2 kilometers, from the inaccurate coordinates given by Titanic's radio operators on the night of a sinking, and are, they lie approximately 715 miles, or 1,151 kilometers, from Halifax, and 1,250 miles, or 2,012 kilometers, from New York. The wreck falls under the, convention, the UNESCO Convention for the Protection of Underwater Cultural Heritage. We're, try saying that five times. And in, that means that all states party to the convention will prohibit the pillaging, commercial exploitation, sale and dispersion of the wreck and its artifacts. Because the location of the wreck being in international waters and the lack of any exclusive jurisdiction over the wreckage area, the convention provides a state cooperation system by which all states in the party, privy to the party, inform each other of any potential activity concerning ancient shipwreck sites such as Titanic and cooperate to prevent unscientific or unethical interventions. Now, on a more positive note, the wrecking of the Titanic also influenced the world safety procedures at sea. For one thing, it is now mandatory for all ships to carry enough lifeboats to comfortably fit all passengers and crew, and for all members of the crew to be chained extensively in their correct use. It's now mandatory for a radio operator or communications officer to be on station and at the ready at all times, day and night. Thankfully, it's not just one person, there are shifts. And the emergency lifeboat policy of women and children's first has since been changed to families first, so not to break up families. That being said, that's the official ruling on if you want to have same-parent marriages or with kids. I'm all in favor for that, but what I'm saying is that now we don't break up families. See what I mean? Anyway, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to the Ravens Grove. I've been Dahi. You've been awesome. I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.